0: In this lecture we're going to be looking at media aesthetics so an overview of some of the topics we're going to be looking at historical influences this idea of media literacy and how that relates to media aesthetics and then we're going to be looking at specifically audio aesthetics Um, you know this being an audio podcasting class that's kind of like our ultimate focus but it's really important to understand how it's related to other types of media, right? Because nothing happens in a bubble. But really, before we dive into any of those, we've really got to define what it is that we're talking about. So, whether or not you realize it, the word media is actually the plural of the word medium. Okay. And in this instance, we're talking about a, a, me, a medium in the sense of a means of communication or even in kind of an older sense of, like, an intervening substance. Um, you know, like they used to believe about our bodies that, like, you know, all the fluid that was it was full of was, um, you know, different types of, like, uh, vapors or ethers or, you know, all these different um, words that they they have for it, you know, before they really understood more about it. And that, of course, um, you know, ties into our Probably the first thing that we think of when we think of the word medium is something in the middle. Um, and so, you know, if medium means in the middle, media is, you know, the, these, this collection of things that, you know, kind of tie us together as a means of communication. Uh, but, of course, that extra aspect of, like, the technology um, inherent in media that's actually only about 100 years old, maybe 150 at most. So the, it, in some ways, media is a very old word. And in some ways, um, our current usage of it is a very modern um, word. Aesthetics is uh, pretty much just an old word, right? Um, and it's, it, it's the classical understanding of aesthetics is as the philosophy of art, right? So like this, this idea of trying to understand the way that we think about art, the way that we decide and assign, you know, what is good and what is bad art, you know, what is beautiful and what is ugly, um, and some, some some important things that fall under the study of aesthetics of anything, including media aesthetics, um, perception, and who gets to do the perceiving, right. Um, but, you know, it, the, and this covers everything from, like, biologically, the way that our eyes work and the things that our eyes are naturally attuned to see as beautiful or not beautiful, um, and to also, like, the, the cultural factors, the historical factors, and that's really related, right, to context, um, you know, to go and view a, a work of art, a you know, famous painting in a museum is one context, but what if you took that same painting and you painted it as a mural on the side of a building, you know, three stories tall, uh, or you know, you set up a, you know a version of that image like in the middle of a war war zone, you know, or something like that. So the context of art uh, is really important to understanding it. Um, and so where these things kind of all tie in together between media and aesthetics is to think of the medium as a structural agent. Okay. So I don't want to like get too theoretical, um, you know, and turn something that is like, you know, mostly an entertainment uh, thing and something that a lot of us enjoy into like something that's unnecessarily academic. But I do think it's really important to think about the way that various mediums—in our case, our main medium is podcasting—but uh, you could say, you know, similar things about film, about television about radio, about popular music, uh, about content on the Internet, websites. Um, you know, all of those mediums have their own unique restrictions based on the way that they're used, and they have their own unique opportunities based on the way that they're used and the, like, the way that that technology continues to unfold so it's a reciprocal relationship that's the main thing i want you to take away right now is you know podcasting really came into the world as the like the the child and the hope for radio as the internet was taking over so there was a lot right away that transferred directly from radio to podcasting but then come to find out like podcasting is actually really different than radio and it's used really differently than radio ever was. Um, And so we're still kind of grappling with that. And that's something we're going to talk about over the next few slides on um, historical influences. So the very first recorded sound um, goes back somewhere to the late 1850s. We know for sure that by 1860, um a french guy whose name i'm not gonna butcher uh, right now recorded um a, a recording of you know a pretty famous tune claire de lune um in france now uh interestingly enough uh, this was not a recording that was really designed to be played back um, uh, de martinville's uh, understanding of the way it happened is like the way that it was recorded uh, would create an etching that could then be read in the same way that we read, like, musical notes now. Um, not, not that it would draw, like, a staff with notes on it, but that it, it would have its own, like, you know, technological thing that it would do to etch it and that we could learn to read that language. Um, so that's, like, how different of a mindset they were in. They weren't thinking about, like, recording and replaying music. Um, they were just thinking about, like, the way that sound recordings could be represented more like writing. Um, another really interesting thing is uh, that Martinville was influenced by what's called a daguerreotype. So that's an early type of uh, photograph uh, of captured images. Uh, the history of photography goes back um, you know, to, to the actual ability to capture an image to, like, the late 1830s. Uh, And actually, uh, the daguerreotype um, started in France. Uh, France was a really big innovator in early image technology. Uh, And then it kind of came to the U.S., and the U.S. really ran with it, especially uh, right around the time of the Civil War, which also starts in the 1860s. Um, But so de Martinville was, was influenced by this idea that, oh, well, if they can capture images why can't we capture sound again he didn't really haven't really thought through all the implications of that or all the possible uses for it um but it's important to kind of understand the ways that visual media and audio media have been really really interconnected from the very beginning of their their histories um and so in the 1870s you've got alexander graham bell the events the uh you know, early telephone technology and Thomas Edison that invents, uh, you know, early uh, recorded sound playback technology with the phonograph. Um, so, uh, you know, here's here's a picture of uh, young Thomas Edison and much older Thomas Edison. And just like uh, he aged um, and changed over time, the you can see the the audio recording machines that kind of all fall under, uh, in our historical memory, the title of phonograph now, were actually very different. Um, there's tons of different iterations. Uh, the very earliest ones, you know, the quality of the playback was more of a novelty. It's just like, oh, look, we can do this, but, um, you know, it wasn't even something you could really understand what was going on. It took decades uh, for that. And uh, there's a lot of really interesting. Um, aspects of, of that that um, you know, I, I think the some of the most important to understand now is like in between um, this time on the left and this time on the right um, the the light bulb and especially like the development of early electricity happens uh, in the late 1870s and the 1880s going into the 1890s and so you know this idea that Thomas Edison invented the light bulb is sorta of true. I mean it was him and like his team. Um but you know of course for a light bulb to be any good you have to have power in your house, right? Um and so Edison had this uh method of delivering electricity that was called direct current or DC and he was just hundred percent sure like that was the only way to go, it was the only thing that was safe. Um, but this uh, young guy from, um, you know, Eastern Europe comes over and has like a lot of different ideas. Uh, some of you may have heard of him. His name's uh, Nikola Tesla about alternating current AC um, and the ability to send electricity over much longer distances, uh, but at much higher voltages. And um, so they had a, uh, ended up having a pretty big battle over this thing. And, um, you know, Edison ultimately ends up really losing the, the sort of practical and ideological technological aspects of that, because, you know, it's otherwise we would have all just had generators in our own homes, right. Because the electricity couldn't go that far, um, which is not, you know, very efficient. Um, but for Edison, that was like really his first like major defeat in, uh, professional life. And he carries that with him heavily when he kind of revisits the phonograph after the what's called the current war as an electrical current, um, and then really when he gets into early film technology. Um, and uh, there's a lot of interesting aspects of that uh, that you know aren't are as relevant uh, to the the central discussion right now. But I think the thing that is most important to understand. Is that, you know, when Thomas Edison came in to phonograph by extension, you know, all all recorded sound, um, you know, related to radio, Thomas Edison had his hands in, in certain aspects of early radio as well. And certainly in early film, um... You know, he came in uh, with much more of a, of a shark mogul mentality, like he was going to own everything. Yeah, that, that mentality has had a lot of repercussions over the ways that media industries in America work uh, still to this very day. Um, so some other things that, that similarly have had um, a lot of influence like that. Uh, early radio, you'll, you will often see the year 1920 cited as the year radio began. Uh, And thus, this being 2020, you know, you'll you'll hear like it's the centennial of radio. It's not super true, um, to be completely honest. Radio goes back at least to the 1910s. Um, And one of the really interesting but under remembered aspects of early radio is that the novelty of being able to just turn on, you know, plug something in, turn a switch and hear something come on was amazing to people, um, you know, in the, in the 1910s uh, when that first became available. But there really wasn't that much content on the airwaves, right? The very first focus was on selling actual radio sets, even though there's not that much to listen to. But of course, you know, people get these radio sets home and then the demand is now created for, well, we want more content, okay? And so one of the earliest Uh, forms of content on the radio was the infomercial. All these department stores that were selling the radio sets and customers are, are, you know, like, well, I would buy one, but, you know, I heard there's not really much to listen to. Well, these department stores would just buy a radio antenna, stick it out the window, and start reading from their catalog, right? Um, And so that's important to remember and it's important to think about the way that Our sort of uniquely American capitalistic media industry model has developed, right? Uh, Because there are other places in the world where uh, most radio, rather than like just NPR in America, which has a relatively small share uh, of the radio airwaves, um, you know, NPR is taxpayer funded. But most radio is advertiser funded because that's just the way that we do things here. And, um, you know, the, it's not fully, like, good or bad, you know, like, there, there's other problems with other ways of doing things. Um, but it's, it's, in, it's important to understand, like, the way that we've done things and the mindsets that have carried into them uh, and how those carry over um, to today. So, um, you know, infomercials were one of the very first genres on early radio uh, but as the radio network um, grows and it's clear that, like, advertising works on radio, but, but maybe listening to somebody read a catalog is not so interesting, so what's a way we can, you know, put some more interesting content content, and then our ads will be even more effective? So you start to see, like, different types of audio dramas emerge, right? And this is still several years before television, Okay? And film at this time is in very early stages, and the storytelling aspect of film is still very much in its infancy. Okay? And so it's important to understand that a lot of the genres like you know, westerns and comedies that have turned into sitcoms uh, and even like romantic-type you know, narratives, a lot of those uh, with media came out of radio, very influenced by like certain literature forms like you know novels and uh, poetry and things like that so radio was really the innovator in uh, media aesthetics in a lot of ways um, because it was the you know it, the film at, in the 1920s was still really living off of this idea of just the novelty of being able to see something and it was just at the very beginning stages of like really delving into story and it was also a lot more difficult to edit film to be in a story whereas you know a, a radio drama is basically just doing a play audio only you know you have a script you have your different actors you might have some sound effects um and so anyways the early radio is the innovator of storytelling okay Um, audio is the innovator of storytelling more so than video Um, uh, but in the 1920s you also see for the very first time this ability to have sound on film right so when films very first came out they were completely silent and nobody needed to hear anything just because the novelty of seeing something was so new and so amazing Uh, but pretty quickly they were like you know what some sound would actually help these visuals and so, lots of different, you know, ways were used to address that. Um, you might have a live piano player uh, in in the theater, and he would play along. You might even have a full band that would play along. Uh, then you might have somebody that actually says lines out loud, you know, like a hired actor that is like up at the front near the stage and says things out loud, you know, along uh, with with the film. Um, but eventually, they are able to actually put sound on the film, and this is just absolutely revolutionary. the The combination of being able to put sound and video together is one of the most like creative and um, innovation inducing inventions of the twentieth century, um, a- along with like the internet. Um, you know, several years later. There, I want to dive into this idea of media literacy. This is maybe a term you've heard before, maybe not. Um, And it means different things to different people. So I want to cover that a little bit. Um, So in, in the discipline of communication, which I know many of you in this class are majors in communication and media studies, and even if that's not your major, Um, You know, that's that's what we're kind of studying the most right now in this class. Uh, This idea of media aesthetics, um, you know, the art of media is the same as media literacy, like, you know, studying the different genres, studying the history, studying like the impact socially and culturally. Like that's what communication scholars are interested in when they're interested in studying media. So one of the probably the most foremost um, scholars of that is a a, a professor named Renee Hobbs uh, from the University of Texas, Austin. I I guess she's still there. Um, She came up with this idea of three different frames for studying media. Uh, The first is the AA frame, authors and audiences, right? Like authors as the individuals who create the media and audiences as the Many groups of individuals who consume the media and the, the looking at the relationship between those two. Um, that's especially a pertinent frame for podcasting, right? Because podcasting offers the opportunity, the ability, more than just about any other medium, for a single author to just make something, put it out there, and try to aggregate an audience. Now, of course, there are some podcasts that are big budget, big production owned by, you know, members of the conglomerates of big media industries. And so there's a lot more going on behind the scenes, but there are plenty of very popular podcasts out there that are just literally one person. um, And this is, this is what they do. Um, And so, you know, that's, that's a, a, an extra important one, I think, for um, the medium that we're talking about in this class. Uh, the second frame is MM, Messages and Meanings, and it's similar, right? Because we often think of the authors as the ones uh, you know, coming up with a message, uh, but I think the, the really important thing to think here is that meanings involve author and audience, right? Like there's the message that the author initially have has but the what is the way that it's actually interpreted in practice is sometimes really unpredictable um right and so and it's this reciprocal relationship it's not a one-way relationship um because it it, you know the meaning can change over time Uh, and then the last frame is rr represent representation and reality so um you know we, we think about the ways that different groups uh, different time periods, different relationships are represented in a lot of media, and then how does that connect, you know, with actual reality? This is something that America is really dealing with uh, right now, right? Um, you know, we have been such a media-consumed and media-saturated culture, and it's really degraded our media literacy, our our ability to... Um, know what kind of information is false and what kind of information is true, uh, and that's having sincere and severe effects on the actual real world in which we live uh, right now. So this is a way that, you know, this is an example of the way that, like, a communication scholar, somebody who's interested primarily in communication, the way that they would define this idea of media literacy and the way they would approach it. Uh, in, in education, so like academic researchers who are more talking about how people learn and how can they learn better and how can they learn effectively for the modern day, uh, it's a bit more practical. So it's, media literacy is less about the art part and it's more about the doing part or the, or you know, something more practical. So David Considine, uh, who was actually my master's um, advisor when I got my master's degree, um, his definition of media literacy is the ability to analyze, evaluate, and communicate information in a variety of formats. Um, And so you can see that there's like several different aspects there. Um, What I like even more is his three purposes. So his pr- purposes were preparation, protection, and pleasure. Prepare for the media-saturated world that we live in, right? Like, there is really no such thing as, like, living apart from media now. Even if you're not, like, a big social media person, like, it's absolutely vital to be able to do media just, you know, to get a job. You can't even apply for a job without a computer, you know? Um, Protection is related in the sense that Considine and, and really anybody who studies this, and I hope you as well, realize that some media messages are very harmful, both to us individually and to the society in which we try to live. And we need to protect ourselves against them, just like we need to protect ourselves against uh, disease or hunger or you know, poverty or whatever. Uh, we need to protect ourselves against the negative influences of media. Uh, And he likes to end it with this idea of pleasure that, like, you can actually enjoy a film or, uh, um, you know, an album or a podcast more if you understand more about the way that media is put together. Um, And I'll just kind of add to that and and, uh, in the media literacy part with Dr. Guthrie's definition, which is, I guess, not really a definition. It's more of a metaphor. But usually the way that I describe media literacy to people Um, is to say that no one would say you were literate in Spanish if you could only read and write it, but you couldn't speak it, right? Um, And that's important because with media, like a lot of times we, I think, approach it in the college set as yeah, you know, well, let's just learn about it. And that is important. And we're doing, literally doing that right now. But one of the best ways to really learn about media is to try to make your own. Right. So like, as, as you are all are devising, like first your idea for your podcast and then thinking about, well, who do you want to target? You know, what audience are you trying to reach? Um, and, and, you know, what message are you trying to send to them? Um, you know thinking through like how that's been done to you you know how how have other media effectively targeted you what's the stuff that you really like why do you like it um how did they do that how did they put that together um in some instances are there some kind of negative aspects of the way that they've really got you the way that they've really hooked you right um how do, how do I, we avoid you know, influencing through the negative in the future? And how do we focus on positive influences? Um, these things, I think, are really important. So um, the last thing I want to talk about uh, is probably the most practical uh, overall um, is specifically audio aesthetics. So what are the aspects um, of media aesthetics that specifically relate to audio? And I would guess that for a lot of us, um, we think about these less than we do the more visual components, okay? And I think that there's some really interesting historical and um, neurological reasons for that. Um, but the you know the two main things when we're when we're talking about podcasting and we're talking about audio aesthetics, um, we're talking about the music that you add to the podcast, uh, whether it's the bumper music or Um, you know music that uh, is cut in between you know different segments or even music that kind of just comes out of the story itself that maybe you recorded a piece of a concert Um, and then also like different sound effects um, right like if you're telling you know maybe you're telling the story of the three little pigs on like a a kid show um, and you've got you know a howling wolf in there you've got the sound of the pigs running through the woods um, you've got the knock, knock, knock on the door, you've got, you know, the, the blowing wind sound, I'm going to blow your house down, you know, the music and sound effects, those are the main things that we're talking about. Um, of course, like just the quality of your spoken voice is also important. We'll kind of handle that separately, um, you know, at, at, in, a, in, a, in a future lecture um so if if you have never heard this word before if, if you've had like a film appreciation class you might have heard the word late motifs um, but you can probably see right in there that the word motif is in there maybe you've heard of that word before um but it's it, this idea of kind of attaching and a, a signature sound to a character to a place to even an emotion in such a way that like you help to trigger something relevant to the story with that okay so a really good example is the movie jaws right like even a lot of you guys may have never even actually seen that movie but you've heard that little melody before and it immediately makes you think of a shark right so that's a very effective uh, very well-known audio leitmotif that I think would in some ways I mean, it's technically music, but it kind of sits in between the idea of music and sound effects because somebody's using a musical instrument to sound, you know, more like a a sound effect creator. Um, So those are some of the really important aspects of audio aesthetics that are going to be very relevant to you as you're doing the sound design of your podcast, Okay. Um, other important aspects of uh, the way that you use music and sound effects are for continuity and movement okay so continuity probably the best example is cutting a identifiable signature intro bumper for your show so that like the first 10 to 15 seconds probably for most of you of your show sounds the same every time and when people hear it especially if it's done well and it you know kind of matches your show uh that that triggers a a response of like okay brain get in the mode you're about to listen to this show um but, you know, other aspects of continuity could be, you know, and it all depends, like, if you have a interview type podcast, or if you have even a podcast that's just you, and you talking, uh, you know, about like a more like a nonfiction topic, um, you know, that this may or may not be super relevant. Uh, but if you have more of like a storytelling type of a podcast, uh, maybe there's a segment in every show uh, that has its own kind of signature sound to it, um, and the the part of the way that you trigger to the audience, like okay, here comes you know that segment of the show, is having you know a different audio marker that shows that continuity, uh, right? Like maybe you are writing a story, um, you're you you know telling your own story, and um, every time the hero comes in their little bumper, da, you know, their, their little signature sound plays. Um, and so that's an example of like continuity and using audio aesthetics to build continuity in a story that doesn't have any visuals, um, to, to build continuity with the other is movement. And so, you know, probably the simplest example of this is more in that, like, um, you know, nonfiction uh, or interview type podcasts. when, you know, a, as a host and their guest or a few guests, as they kind of go back and forth, um, you know, especially in the longer format interview podcasts, uh, every now and then you just need a break, your ear needs a break. Um, and often you'll see the breaks come after a pretty profound part, you know, and it just gives your mind time to think. And so often, what that break will look like is just the music will start out really softly as the guest or the host says, like the last ten seconds, five seconds of whatever they were going to say, and then the the uh, voice stops completely, and the audio comes up to full volume. It plays for you know ten seconds, maybe fifteen, and then it ducks back down. And then you go back into like part two of the interview. Um, but that music really helps with the movement of the, of the story, even a nonfiction type interview story. All right. This word diegetic versus non-diegetic um, is something that's important to understand. Uh, it's something that I think, you know, just because the, the oddness of the word, you know, some students can kind of like, well, I, they have trouble like wanting to locate it. Um, diegetic means that it's naturally a part of the story and non-diegetic means it's outside. So when we're talking about podcasting, what's music? In most cases, music and podcasting is actually non-diegetic. What's an example of when it could be diegetic? Let's say you're doing a podcast about rap music okay? And you actually go to a rap concert with your little audio recorder, and you just record some of the sounds of the concerts. It's not even an interview with a particular person in the audience. It's just background sound from the concert. Oftentimes in a podcast, that'll be played like at full volume for a little bit, and then it'll kind of duck down a little bit, um, and you'll have some narration over it you might even have like an interview over it uh, like with someone that you talk to there um but that that music that's playing in even if it's background in the show that is part of the actual story the bumper music that you put at the beginning that is non-diegetic like you put that in there if you have a a part of that same show where you break it like in the middle and you want to have a little music break maybe even you're going into an ad that's non-diegetic so it's it's not that all music or all sound effects like are one or the other it's more of how it's used in the story that's what the idea of not diegetic versus non-diegetic is all about um it you know doesn't even really matter if you remember that vocabulary word a whole lot to me. Uh, what matters more is that you're thinking through ways to use both different types to tell a story to t- uh, to effectively tell your story. Okay, uh, and so the last thing I want to talk about is image-based versus audio-based work. So we mentioned the beginning. This goes all the way back to the idea that even you know, the thought to record sound was influenced by uh, early photography. Um, In America especially, we have a demonstrable um, preference for image-based work over audio-only based work, okay? Um, And it's a cultural thing. We're a highly visual culture. I mean, it goes all the way back to, like, uh, all the founding fathers were, um, you know, journalists and and all about print and, and, you know, the ability to read. Um, uh, But it's physiologically uh, a really interesting phenomenon is this. When um, students such as yourselves, when they are surveyed regularly about, you know, what type of content do you learn the most from? Uh, The number one is video content, um, visual content. You know, I can see something. But when we hook students up to actual, like, biometric scanners, we find that, no, it's actually audio content that your brain processes and retains more deeply. So the power of putting audio and visual together is undeniable. The, The visual grabs your interest and gets you engaged, but it's actually the audio that you're learning the most, and the most effective podcasts have a way of creating an oral soundscape—a u r a l oral—that's like just describing sound that kind of replaces what you miss in not having the visuals, right? That it, it replaces that to the degree that your um, your mind is really held to it. And th- then you process the, the actual words that are being spoken uh, in the same way that you do, you know, when it's a film or a television show. Another aspect of podcasting is that you're often doing it while your body is doing something else, while you're driving, you know, working out, um, whatever it may be. And so that, you know, is also a reason that it, it's, it can be really effective. But when we're talking about audio aesthetics, it's important to understand the, the power of the spoken word um is is really second to none for actually communicating information and actually even changing people's opinions uh the last thing i want to say is just legally and this is you know really coming just more from my own research you know the kind of the research that i did for my phd dissertation and and ongoing uh, there there's a really interesting trend you know in american history and other um, uh, copyright history, as well from other countries, um, that there is this preference for image-based work over audio-based work. Uh, so, going back, you know, to the history of photography, uh, photographers got the status of like quote-unquote authors really early. Like when copyright first came about, it was really just for books. You know, we were really just thinking of authors in the most literal sense, like a writer of a book. Um, and then all these other mediums like photography, the ability to record sound, eventually film, you know, these all came up like way after copyright law had been established. And so it's like, well, what do we do with all that? Well, because photography was visual, they got classified as authors. A judge could read a book, a judge could see a photograph, but musicians and those that were creating audio based work didn't really get that same kind of preference. Um, There was a a judge that decided a case in 1908, really famous case about uh, player pianos, that said that even though music, quote, is intended for the ear as writing is for the eye, end quote, he still didn't really grant it the status of, um, you know, where composers got like that authorship status where they like deserved royalties. And so that, you know, that, that kind of copyright and, and other legal discrimination against audio-based work is still with us. And it's something that you want to be aware of as you are creating uh, audio content. And um, I think one of the most important aspects of that at this stage is just like we are, we're not going to give in to that societal pressure in this class. We're not going to say like, oh, it's just a song. Oh, it's just this thing that somebody recorded. Like it doesn't, I, it, I don't have to value it enough that I really give them credit or, you know, I can just use their work however I want. It's just a sound no, we're not gonna do that. So like, you need to be keeping that in mind as you're creating you know, your final podcast that any music or any sound effects that you use, you're gonna have to document to me that you either recorded it from scratch yourself, which means that you own the copyright and you're completely in the clear, or if you're using it from someone else that you have clear permission to do so. And depending on what it is, that can look like different things. Um, but I just I, I need to really hammer into you right now at this stage that you can't just use anything you find on the internet. You have to document the the you know, the right to use anything that you use. All right.